Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this narration of the web novel Humans Don't Make Good Familiar, written by Archangel98, taken from Reddit with the author's approval. Just a quick note, there is a one-shot by the same name written by a different author. That one was the inspiration for this series. This author asked that author if he could continue the story, and this is that. So, this is a retelling of the first chapter, because it was rewritten by this author. Please don't forget to use the usual YouTube gum if you want more of this stuff. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Chapter 1 Around me, all that I could be heard was the scribbling of pencils running in multiple choice bubbles. I wasn't too stressed about the test since the engineering course I wanted to enter wasn't particularly hard to get into. And I happened to be a pretty decent at maths. The class was ten minutes into a mid-year math exam when, under me, a brightly illuminated circle patterned with lines and smaller circles appeared. Startled, I looked up, but no one seemed to notice. That's when everything went dark. Like a slow blink, the world came back into view again. Except my view was full of little royal blue-colored and almost sparkling burdenums staring at me. I staggered back in surprise before I managed to regain my balance and look around the room. The roof was just above my head, but since these little nymph things were what this room was designed for, uh, I guess that made sense. To them, it probably looked more like an arena or a school gym. In fact, there were definitely some kind of gymnastics bars and other assorted climbable bars scattered around the room. Turning my attention back to the nymphs, I noticed a couple amongst them seemed to be a little larger and duller colored, like a steel blue and decorated in gold lace that definitely made them look more, uh, a visual. There was one standing in front of the crowd, what seemed to me to be, uh, younger nymphs. They were almost holding them back behind a kind of invisible line. Well, behind the crowd stood three taller ones who definitely looked apprehensive. My attention finally rested on the one bluebird nymph facing me, standing in front of all the others. It looked like it was fidgeting, peering at me with upturned eyes. Pepitao, it chirped, and as it did so I felt encouragement, demand, and uh, I should tell them who I am. I guess they wouldn't know, I thought to myself. Hey, I'm Jake, I said to the crowd, at large, waving my hand. The group of brightly colored nymphs exploded in a cacophony of just chirps. The chirps and tweets strongly reminded me of excited whispering when someone does something amazing in a library or a situation where you need to be quiet. The four, who I was starting to suspect were teachers, seemed to relax a little. Their feathers flattened closer to their bodies, but their gazes stayed wary. The little light blue one at the front seemed to gain a bit of confidence, holding its head higher and walking with a longer stride. Pretperal, it choked once again, but this time I felt submission and... I should go to my master. Wait, master? I thought, seemingly at odds with my own mind. I cannot keep away. Wait, what? Why can't I keep who waiting? In my mind, either back and forth enraged, I would flip between desperation and a desire to serve to confusion and clarity. No, I just have to walk to her. What the frick? Why am I thinking? Go to her. Holy crap, this is mind control. Go to her now. Get out of my head. I screamed, filled with frustration and unbridled rage. As I yelled, the crowd of birds shrank away, falling completely silent. Even the four teachers looked stunned, but they quickly recovered. In the silence, the light blue one repeated nervously, Pritperal, 
I should know! I yelled again. This time the crowd scattered, chirping desperately as they flattened their wings and flew over each other trying to get away. The three teachers at the back were prepared this time, chirping in sync. The three gestured towards what looked like a jagged rock sitting on a trolley between them and motioned towards me. This was followed by the rock flying towards me at a speed of a pegged handball. Out of the pure instinct, out of my hand protected my face and called the jagged rock, which was followed by a loudly screaming, Ow! The mayhem instantly came to a stop as all the little feathered heads turned towards the source of the sound. I dropped the rock out of my right hand and into my left and looked down at the broken remains of the pencil that I must have been unknowingly holding the whole time. It had snapped, and one of the broken halves was protruding a little into my palm. That hurts! I shouted, throwing the rock back in the general direction it came from. The stone flew and buried itself halfway into the floorboards right in front of the teacher nymphs, who staggered back and fell over with, what in hindsight, must have been utter horror, judging by the puffed-up feathers. The false teacher was shaking a little blue nymph and chirping something, while the rest of the students were stampeding out of the room. That's when I finally realized the gravity of what had probably happened. Crap, I thought. I looked down at the little nymph who began chirping something again, but this time I didn't feel anything. Confused, I looked around the room and then doubted myself, only to see my legs disappearing. Holy crap! I exclaimed as my stomach, hands and chest faded into nothing. The last thing I saw before the world fading into dark was the little blue nymph staring at me in what looked like shock. And then I was back. Students writing, the supervisor staring daggers at me, everything exactly as I'd left it. Glancing at the clock, I'd still had ten minutes past the start of the exam, the exact same time as I disappeared. I examined myself up and down, then saw my pencil, broken, with a little bit of blood trickling down from my palm. It had almost been a year since that strange encounter. Thankfully, I graduated high school without any issues. It didn't tell anyone about my experience that day, figuring that I would either be laughed at or institutionalized. In spite of my greatest hopes and wishes, I didn't see any of my friends jumping out and saying, It's just a prank, bro, or gotcha, nor even any cryptic lines which may be references to what happened. Nor could I find anything strange in what I ate that day. There weren't any opportunities for anyone to have slipped me something in my drinks or food, so I simply kept my mouth shut. I ended up writing it off as a mystery. But it got me thinking. If I did get summoned to another world, and it happened like in some of the stories I read, would I be ready? Since my answer to that was a solid no, I decided to do something about it. My mild obsession with science and engineering actually ended up helping me in my final semester at high school. Even if the new archery, martial arts, fencing, and firearm classes didn't. I uh, may have overprepared just a bit. I was now well into my first semester at uni, studying a flexible first-year engineering and science course, and had started to doubt that anything was going to come out of the strange experience. That was, until one day, at the firing range, as I was raising my rented Glock 34, that same patterned circle appeared, and everything went dark. Opening my eyes, there was the same aqua-blue bird nymph, leaning against a wooden wall behind it. This time, I was determined not to do anything that might spook it, and risk losing my chance at a proper hello. So I steeled myself to resist, 
but not to overreact to whatever came next. He chirped quickly, and, like last time, I felt my mind trying to convince me to do something, but this time it wasn't desire to serve or some compulsion to submit. It was fear, grief, and desperation. He wasn't trying to give an order. It was pleading. This time, I understood it immediately. That chirp was a help-me. Setting my face to grim determination, I nodded to the poor creature and turned around to the scene of destruction. We were in what looked like a ballroom, one whose roof was tall enough for me to fit, but the tables lay on their sides, broken and cracked, with more of the little bird nymphs littering the floor, many in pools of blood with sickening injuries. In the middle of them all, with its attention fully focused on me, was a massive monster. Massive, for the nymphs that is, it really was about the size of a large dog, reaching about my thighs on all fours, and was best described as a mutant child of a dog, a lion, and a porcupine. The monster tensed its muscles, opening its mouth, and let out a horrific screech. I raised my gun and fired. Seemingly instantly, there was a hole in front of the creature's forehead and a spray of red behind its head, all of which was accompanied by the sound of metallic snap and the squelch of exploding brains. The monster screaming stopped. It stood still, as if frozen in time. Then slowly, it fell forward with a meaty thud onto its stomach. I wanted to help the other birds, but my brain was still processing what had just happened. Did, uh, did I just freak up? What if, what, what if that was a person? I mean, it does have blood all over its claws and around its mouth. But what if it was a mistake? And all of these numb things, how can I... I wondered, but was cut off halfway through my thought as a single chirp from behind me. Turning around, the little nymph projected a feeling of amazement, relief, and mourning into my mind. I smiled, thinking at least I had done something right by this one, and replied, Any time. After hearing my words, the little nymph sunk back against the wall, closed its eyes, and lay there still. Just then, I heard the frantic chirps getting louder from the corridors, Turning around to find the source, I noticed I was fading again. My legs already gone, my hands, chest, and then I saw the origin of the chirps. Larger, more professional-looking limbs poured through one of the doors. That was my last sight before fading away. End of chapter. Chapter 2 I was right back where I'd been, at the shooting range holding the rented Glock 34. I pulled out the magazine and counted the bullets. I was one shy. I suppose I was expecting it all to have been a dream or a hallucination. But no, there was only one bullet shy. I thought to myself how lucky I was that all of the times that I could have been taken to fight that creature was when I had a gun in my hand. I almost laughed at the thought of it if I had been in the loo, but my smile quickly faded and was replaced with fear. What have I been in the loo? I said aloud. I had no way of knowing when or if they would summon me again, and what if they do summon me to fight another monster when I'm unarmed. Sure, I'd learned plenty about hand-to-hand combat over the last few years, in response to my last abduction, but if I hadn't had a weapon this time, I had lost my enthusiasm and left the shooting range for the day. Arriving at home, a small flat but home nonetheless, I walked into my room, passed a stack of dirty clothes, and sat on my bed. I started going over what I definitely knew about them, and then tried coming up with theories to fill the gaps of what I didn't know. 
I laid flat on my back and began thinking loud. They are small creatures resembling birds or fairies. They are intelligent, and they live in a world where they are not the top of the food chain. I thought for a moment about what else I had seen. They have magic, or some kind of science so advanced that its difference is inconsequential. Except for their weapons, I said remembering the handball-sized rock that they had launched at me in the first time. When I'd shot that, uh, thing, the little blue bird, one that summoned me, was amazed. I know that for sure. I then started to consider how I knew that. None of those creatures had ever spoken a single word to me. They seemed to be telepathic in some way, communicating their thoughts as desires and emotions rather than full, proper words. The first time they looked at me, they put in my head the desire to serve a master in some fashion, but never once did they actually speak directly to me. I mulled over all of this around my head for a solid hour before my stomach began to rumble and I decided to cook something to eat. My kitchen, like my flat, was small and left much to be desired, but it fit my personality just fine. I liked things simple and understandable. I liked to analyze something down to the smallest part and know what makes it tick. I walked into my kitchen, pulled out the boiling pot, filled it with water, and put it on the stove. Maybe some ramen and crisps, I said, sticking my head and arm into my pantry to try and find a packet of ramen. I found one at the very back of the cabinet. Gotcha, I said proudly, and turned around to go back to my stove. There was one problem. It wasn't there. In fact, neither was my flat, for that matter. I was standing in a field of bluish-green grass and burnt orange sky. Gold and pink clouds floated and danced in it like a graceful ballerina doing a show for the whole world to see. A small, timid chirp came from behind me. I turned, and there, sat atop some kind of railing, was that tiny nymph. In my head, I began to feel its presence. I felt it push its emotions and feelings into me. Thankfulness, remorse, amazement, and most strongly, sorrow. It was terribly sad about something, perhaps over what had happened in that building. I didn't know how else to comfort the creature, so I leaned down and stroked its small, feathered head. I began to feel its emotions even stronger, as soon as I touched it. Are you okay? I asked it. It didn't answer, of course, but it did let its head sink into my hand, and I felt just how much anguish it was in. I could almost see its thoughts as if they were playing like a movie in my head. The longer the creature touched me, the clearer the images became. It was thinking about what had happened mere hours ago. They'd been in class, learning what seemed to be new spells, when they heard the shrill shrieks that meant danger. Outside, an enormous beast had accidentally been summoned by another student. They'd wanted something strong and fierce, and got exactly that. Just like what happened to me, the nymph tried to cast some kind of control spell on it, but to no avail. The mind of the monster was too primitive to understand and filled with far too much primal rage to care. It had mauled the nymph to death, then proceeded to rampage throughout the school. Most students flew to safety, some of the teachers did too, but others tried to fight it off. They launched their rocks at it, but the monster's hide was too tough. One teacher tried to use magic on the beast, but that only served to anger it. It began slaughtering and maiming everything within sight. The small nymph flew into the closet in an attempt to hide and was forced to watch as the beast tore through everyone else. I felt the little nymph's fear and stress as it recalled the events. Its panic was immense, but the visions didn't stop. 
The beast, with its large, quilled back and long claws, seemed insatiable at its bloodlust. But soon it ran out of prey. It sniffed the ground, then the air, then drew closer to the little being hiding in the closet. It panicked, the nymph flew out of the closet and over to the beast, which took a swat at it with its claws, but narrowly missed. It flew into another room, where it gathered together ingredients and a small wooden plank spilled with markings. I began to understand it now. We had been in contact for several minutes, so I just was now beginning to understand its thoughts. I knew of no spell strong enough to save me if I attacked it, and I knew that if I ran, it would chase me. I had no way to defeat this monster, so I needed one of my own. Its voice was like a faint whisper in my head. No longer was it merely emotions or desires, but actual solid words, however soft that they may have been. I can understand you, I said amazed. It pulled away in what seemed to be shock, or perhaps confusion. You... you can speak, it said, sounding some mix of terrified and baffled. End of chapter. Chapter 3 You... You can speak, it said, sounding some sort of mixed and baffled. I feel like I should be the one asking that question. I said to the small, blue creature, I'm... I'm sorry, its small nymph said. For what? I wondered. I'm sorry for trying to make you my familiar. Even after I realized that you were as intelligent species, I still attempted to put you under my control. I was young, and my instructor, he said, uh, he told me that I should continue with the ritual. I, I I didn't want to, but I was too afraid to make any objections known. I deeply apologize. The nymph bowed its head in shame. Why summon me in the first place? I asked. The nymph raised its head and looked at me, her eyes filled with remorse. It was part of my training. I was a student and was undergoing a test, the right of dominance. I was ordered to summon a creature as powerful as I could, then dominate its mind and force it to become my familiar. Familiar. I'd heard the term before, but couldn't quite place the where. I being meant to serve as a guardian, servant, and ally, the nymph explained. I nodded my head, then I understood. You wanted to me to be your servant, I questioned. Part of me was offended. Part of me was proud to be considered powerful. The nymph winced as in pain. I... yes. The nymph spread its wings and bowed once more, this time with its whole body. I see how wrong I was now. Minna Armor, as weak as myself, could never hope to master a being so powerful as yourself, Great One. Niama, Great One, I thought to myself. Is that what your species is called, Naama? I asked. Yes, Great One, it answered, still bowed. Why are you calling me Great One? You slew the Borag in a single attack of thunder and metal. It was a ritual more powerful and devastating than any of my people have ever seen, she explained. Um, right. I didn't know how to respond. My name is Jake, and you can just call me that. The nymph stood up. Jake, allow me to offer my life as compensation for attempting to control you, and for forcing you into our fight against the Borag. I only ask that you spare my people from your wrath. Whoa, 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 chill out. There is no need for all of that. I admit that I was pretty upset by everything that happened, but uh, I'm not going to kill you over it. The little nymph sighed deeply, and its wings drooped. I hadn't realized how tense it must have been through all of this. Thank you. Uh, what's your name? I asked. I'm afraid I do not possess a name, she replied. You don't? I asked, surprised. 
It would be a waste of a name to a lowly fifth-level mage like myself. Only those of great importance are honored with names and titles, she explained. Oh, well, would it be okay if I gave you a name? I wondered. You honor me, sir, but please don't trouble yourself. I am not worth such a gift, she said. Well, I need something to call you. It would be a lot easier on me, I said. Then I happily accept. The nymph jumped excitedly. I looked the bird over for a minute, thinking carefully about what to call it. She had it on a magical wonder and poise, so I figured that I should try and do something with that. How about Suba? I suggested. She flapped her wings and chirped loudly. A wonderful name. Thank you, great one. Seriously, just call me Jake, I told her. Can I ask you a question, Suma? Why would a student need a powerful familiar? For the war, uh, Sir Jake. War? I asked. Yes, sir. Our people have been at war for nearly a decade now with the Southern Union. Who are the Southern Union? Our world is divided into four factions. One is a powerful and in control of huge swaths of land. The Southern Union controls the entire continent of Ariza and its surrounding islands. They are perhaps the most influential of all the factions. And the crudest. I see. But why would a student need to worry about war? Once we finish at the academy, all students are considered full mages and are sent to fight, Suba explained. I was shocked. They send you to war as soon as you graduate. Yes, this is the way that it has been for nearly a decade. The war is not going well. We have been outmatched since the beginning. So, they need everyone who has ability to cast our rites and rituals to join the military. But do you want to? What happens if you say no? I wondered. I volunteered, but there have been instances of people who were under orders to report for duty refusing to. What happened to them? Some were imprisoned. Others were made examples of. Killed? I nearly shouted. Suma's feathers ruffled and she reeled in surprise. What? No. They were publicly announced as cowards and ostracized by their families. Oh, that's still not great, I said. No, it is a pitiable existence indeed. Those who refuse to fight against the oppressive Southern Union deserve what they get, though. Refusing to stand against an enemy is the same as helping it rise to power. What makes the Southern Union so bad? I asked. Suma shook her head and spoke softly. They've killed or enslaved countless Nyama. Their poor are treated as little more than beasts. Their rich stand on the backs of the innocents they exploited. Any who speak out against their leadership are publicly executed. That sounds uh, pretty bad, I said. Indeed, our soldiers do what they can to keep them at bay, but their army is strong. Most of them, wealth of the nations goes directly to it. We are barely able to hold our territory. We lost the island of Sangu just last year. I thought for a moment about my life, about these people, and about everything I'd done over the last few years and meeting Suma for the very first time. I liked what I'd been doing. All of my study and training, I did it all so that I would be ready if I was ever taken again, now that I was here. Is there anything I can do to help? End of chapter. Part 4 You wish to help? Suma chirped slightly confused. If I can, yeah, I told her. Even after, even after, I, I tried to control you. Just don't do it again, I chuckled. Of, of, of course, never again. 
she said, and began almost bobbing her head up and down, seeming happy. Ah, um, I think the translation thing stopped working there for a second, I said. Suma slowly stopped, bouncing and still excited, explained, Oh, oh no, it, it is still working fine. I, I was singing in an old tongue of my people. I don't really know what it means, but it is sung when we are happy. Oh, I nodded in understanding. So, Suma, can you tell me what I should expect if I were to become your familiar? Suma's head craned back as she were avoiding a slap. A uh, great, uh, Jake, uh, I, I couldn't possibly make you my familiar. I am not worthy to be the master of such a great being as you. You have already shown so much kindness by naming me. I couldn't possibly ask you for any more. I shook my head and waved my hand in dismissal. You aren't asking. I am. I have prepared for years in case I was summoned again, and then I find out that there is no danger of that, that I basically wasted years of my life over nothing. I want to at least use the skills I learned to help someone. I'm not much of a soldier, but maybe I could make a decent familiar. I... I... Suma was dumbstruck and could barely form a sentence. She shook her head and flapped her wings. Okay. So, uh, what do we do first? I asked. We need to perform the rite of two. It'll bind our souls and allow us to communicate with each other across worlds, as well as let me summon you in a moment's notice, she explained. How do we do that? I wondered. We need to go to the Grand Sanctum. It is illegal to try and perform it anywhere else now. After what happened... I figured she was either talking about me or the Borog beast, but I didn't ask. But that, we left the school and made our way to the city. Will it be all right if I just walk around like this? What if I scare someone? I asked Suma. It should be fine. Most people will assume that you are a familiar and under control ritual, but you will definitely draw quite a few stares. She chirped in a way that I think that she was laughing. She wasn't wrong. Nobody bothered us. But almost everyone we passed looked at me with either shock or fear. I was guessing anyway. Still, couldn't exactly tell with them. For all that I knew, they could have been flipping me off in their own way. We arrived in the Grand Sanctum without incident. Mostly. I think one of them was trying to seduce Suma, but she had me chase him off. She chirped happily as he squawked and flew away as fast as he could. The Grand Sanctum was a large, white building. That had huge holes preppered throughout its walls. Nymphs were speedily flying in and out of them, making a variety of noises as they did. There was an open, large area at the bottom. Well, large compared to the nymphs. I had to crouch down to make it through. I guess bipedal apes are rare for familiars. Inside, it was like a giant birdcage. Some areas had walls, others were just shells. But most of it was just empty space so that there was room to fly. This place is huge, I whispered to Suma. She had told me that I needed to be quiet, or the other nymphs would think that she was losing control of me, and I would end up in a cage or something. It's actually the largest building in the city right now, but I hear there is a larger one somewhere in the western atolls, Suma quietly told me. She waited in a line leading to the large pedestal for about twenty minutes. But eventually, we were called up by an older-looking nymph with greyish feathers and a more curled beak than Suma's. Next, he squawked. We walked up and Suma said, I'm here to perform the rite of two. ID number and date of hatching, the older bird requested. ID 12655697411. I was hatched on the second Famworth twelve years ago. Oh, and my name is Suma. The last part she announced proudly. As soon as Suma said she had a name, 
The older bird perked up and began talking in a much friendlier tone. Oh, uh, Madam Sewer, my, my apologies for the long wait. We'll get you a room for your ritual right away. Um, the older bird looked at me and then back to Sima. Is this creature that you'll be pairing with today or shall I get you a summoning squad? This is him, she answered. Very good, uh, we'll alert you just in a moment when the room is available. Please feel free to relax in our waiting area. And if you want, we have a nice kennel for your future familiar to stay in while you wait. I shot him an icy glare, and the feathers around his neck puffed up. That won't be necessary. Jake will be staying with me. Very good, he said, looking back and forth between me and Suma. We walked into the waiting area, he mentioned, and she perched on a kind of metal branch thing, meaning that there wasn't a single real seat in sight. I sighed. Uh, I guess I'll stand. Sorry about the kennel thing, Suma said sheepishly. It's no big deal, I told her. I guess that is something that I'll just have to get used to. We didn't have to wait long for our turn to the room. I guess named nymphs are this world's equivalent of rich people or nobility of some kind. The room was much smaller than the main area, but more than large enough for myself and several nymphs. Okay, Jake. Are you ready? Zuma asked. End of chapter. Chapter 6 Okay, Jake. Are you ready? Zuma asked. Ready, I told her. Suma then bowed her head and spread her wings with the tips pointed to the sky. A glowing, multicolored magic circle formed on a golden floor around each of our feet and began to twist and match the shapes of our shadows. Soon, I felt a kind of heaviness on my soul that nearly fell to my knees, but managed to steady myself and power through. The weight suddenly vanished, and I heard a voice echoing inside my mind. It was far away at first, and I couldn't make out the words, but soon it boomed like thunder. A name is required. A name? I asked aloud. Suma looked at me questioningly. Did you hear that, Jake? She sounded confused, or maybe scared. Without warning, a small ember began to glow in the floor. It radiated in a brilliant display of light, until it nearly exploded into a roaring inferno between Suma and myself. A name is required. The flaming figure bellowed. There were several large birds and their animals in the room with us, and each of them stepped back at the sight of this creature. I, uh, I, I'm Jake, I yelled out, but the figure ignored me and turned to Suma. She looked at me and turned back to the figure and shouted, His, his name is Sentinel, Great One. The figure faded back into an ember and the burning pain shot through my shoulder. Ah! I yelped and lifted up my sleeve to see that a magic circle, surrounded by some kind of alien letters, had been etched into my skin like a tattoo. I looked down at the floor, and the magic circles faded away to nothing, leaving the room filled with an eerie quiet. What the heck was that? I asked, breaking the rest of the room's occupants out of their own stupors. I have no idea, Zuma replied meekly. End of chapter Part 6 I lay down in my bed that night, unable to sleep. The image of the flaming figure was burned into my mind and would not let me rest. I asked Summer about it, and she had asked some of the other officials from the temple, but no one had any answers. I thought back to our conversation after we had left the temple. We were both shaken and concerned. How did you know what it meant when it asked you for a name? I asked Summer. Flattering beside me, she landed on the shoulder that now bore the strange tattoo. I, um, I just had a feeling. I don't know how to explain it. 
All I know is that repairing worked. I can now summon you whenever I need, and we can talk to each other between worlds, Suba said. How do you know? Is it the tattoo thing? I asked, pointing at my free hand at the marking. Yes, she nodded her head. Can I ask you something? Why did you choose the name Sentinel? Or better yet, where did you even hear that word? I wondered. Sentinel? It means great one. I thought it fitting, she said. My world is that word too, you know. It basically means guardian or watchers, I told her. Then I was right. It does fit, she said. It had been hours since Suma sent me back to my world, plopping me right back in the middle of my kitchen. I checked my watch as soon as I arrived, and then checked the alarm clock in my room. There was a massive difference between the two. I'd been gone for two or so hours, but according to the clock in my room, no time had passed. Thoughts kept racing through my mind. How am I supposed to beat something like a Borag if I'm not armed? What if I'm summoned to fight in a war and I get someone killed because I'm not strong enough? I stayed awake all night trying to answer these questions and more. But the only conclusion I came up with is this. I can never be caught with my pants down. I began researching how to fight different kinds of animals and the best ways to treat wounds in as many circumstances as I could think of. I made lists of supplies from everything from first aid to close quarters combat that was legal to own in my country. Shy of moving to America, where I could probably buy an AK-47 at Walmart, I needed to surefire way to deal with as many situations as possible. My eventual conclusion was that I needed something that I could quickly convert into a weapon after I was summoned, or learn how to manufacture the weapon in the other world so that I could keep it there. The conversion seemed easier so I pulled a 3D modeling program to help me design it. The sunlight poured into my room from the outside, just as I put the finishing touches on my design. In the course of four hours, I had gone through seven ideas and attempted to build mock versions of them out of what I had lying around. I decided on what was essentially a kind of folding knife that could attach to a collapsible rod. I looked at my clock and decided that I could finish my project later, since it was my day off of work. Just as I laid down to sleep, I heard Suma's voice in my head. I summon you, Sentinel. A magic circle formed in my bed around my body, and I slowly began to disappear. I reached out and grabbed my pajama shirt and trousers just before my hand disappeared. End of chapter. Part 7 I reached out and grabbed my pajama shirt and trousers just before my hand disappeared. Ah! I yelped as I slammed face first onto a grassy ground. Suma squawked in surprise and flapped her wings in an attempt to regain her balance. Jake, are you okay? She asked, once again finding her footing on a small wooden perch. I groaned, rolling over on my back and touching my face to make sure that I wasn't bleeding. Uh, a little warning would have been appreciated. I said, sitting up and putting my trousers up, then sliding on my shirt. Sorry, but what were you doing floating in the air without your garments? Suma wondered. I stood up and rolled my shoulders. I was about to go to sleep. Okay, but how were you floating, she asked. I wasn't floating, I was lying on a bed. Boy, I'm sure glad I had clothes nearby, I told her. Oh, I don't know what a bed is, but you were lying on something, and I guess that makes sense, but why were you not in your garments? She cocked her head in confusion. Suma, why did you summon me here? I ignored the question because at the moment I didn't feel like detailing the intricacies of human sleeping habits. Oh, right, we need to train, she explained excitedly. Train, but I'm... Wait, I feel fine, 
I exclaimed, as I expected to feel absolutely exhausted after staying up all night and a day. But actually, I felt as if I had gotten a full night's sleep. Suma, why am I not tired? Summoning a person has basically reconstitutes them in our world, fully rejuvenated and healed. It was made this way so as to heal wounds dealt during battle, she told me. Although I can't revive the dead or replace lost limbs. So I could get stabbed, but as soon as you send me back home, I'll be fine, I asked. As long as you don't die, then sure, she said. Are you ready to train? Suma asked. Sure, but what do you mean when you say train? I wondered. Practice our magics and battle strategies, as well as find out where our combination of magic is and how it works, Suma told me. Um, I don't know any magic, I said. Her head moved back slightly and she ruffled her feathers. But you use magic to kill the Borag. No, I used a gun. What is a gun? It's a weapon made to send small pieces of metal several hundred kilometers per hour at an opponent. This usually puts a hole in them, some large and some small depending on the type. I exclaimed. Okay, well, you can just use that in training, Sue said. I don't have it. I don't even own one. I was just renting the one I had when I killed the Borag. Suma stayed quiet for a while. Her beak gave little in the way of expression, but I could only assume that it was either regret or annoyance at the sudden realization that I didn't come with super awesome instant kill moves that she thought I had. Well, um, how do we make one? She finally spoke. Your world has magic, right? I spent a lot of time thinking about that last night, and I came up with two ideas. My first thought was to make a weapon that I could keep on my person at all times in my world, but that is just infeasible and would most likely end with me in jail. My second thought was constructing a weapon here and leaving it with you when I'm not here. Okay, I think I could do that, but what kind of weapon did you have in mind? A stone thrower. A few weapons here, but nothing like your, uh, gun, Suma said. I was thinking of a sword or shield, or maybe a spear. If I could figure out how to make it practical, I would try and make a gun of some kind. Even a flintlock would work. But the materials required might not even exist here. So, I won't worry about that yet, I told her. What are swords and spears? she asked. I was a bit caught off guard by this question. But I guess it made sense that their species didn't have things like that, since they don't have the hands or bodies necessary for that kind of combat. A sword is a sharp piece of metal, like iron or steel fixed on a handle, and a spear is similar but far longer, I told Suma. Suma shook her head. I can't say that I've ever heard of such things. Does your world have the ability to smelt steel and shape it? I asked. We do, but it is usually only done for things like construction. I don't know if weapons can be made that way. Might as well try, I said. With that, Suma and I went into the city in search of a metal worker and tools. I knew enough about the process from my studies and the years of preparation that I could probably do it myself if I had to, but I'd rather leave it in the hands of a professional. It took only an hour, but soon we found a small shop run by an elderly unnamed nymph who seemed interested in making weapons out of steel instead of just normal construction supplies. I gave him a detailed drawing of the sword, shield, and a spear, and I don't know how he planned to build our order without hands, but he seemed confident that he could. We paid him with some of the world's currency, as well as a bit of magic power, which Suma supplied. I asked later, and she explained that it was a normal way to pay here. In total, it cost us only a little bit of money, at least, I think, as the metal workers seemed like he cared more for about finding out if it was possible than getting paid. How long did they say that our weapons would take to finish? I asked Suma. 
a week total, but the spear probably only two days. While we waited, we spent a week training what we could. We went over potential battle tactics, so what positions we could take on the battlefield, and she also explained what combination magic was. Apparently, it was something we could still do, despite me not having any magic. It was performed by my lending her some of my life force, as she called it, and then combining it with her own to create a unique attack or effect. Are you ready, Jack? Zuma asked as she prepared to perform the ritual to take some of my life force. Ready, I said. A magical circle formed around the two of us, and then slowly they warped to form a figure eight, and then connected between our bodies. I felt a feeling of cold chill run down my body, and a wave of blue traveled from my end of the circle to hers. As soon as it touched her body, Suma began crying out in pain and fell to her stomach. As soon as she hit the ground, the circle vanished, and I ran to pick her up. Suma! End of chapter. Part 8. As soon as she hit the ground, the circle vanished, and I ran up to pick her up. Suma! She laid motionless and limp in my hands as I carefully picked her up and cradled her in my arms. Suma! Suma! I yelled, and after a moment, she slowly opened her eyes. Oh, thank goodness, I sighed to myself. That... that really hurt, Suma moaned. I'm sorry, I don't know what happened, I told her. Oh, uh, it... It was my fault. I failed to realize how strong you actually were, and tried taking 10% of your life energy. Her voice sounded as if each word was a struggle to get out. It was a foolish mistake. I should have performed a free-flow technique rather than a portion one. It would have been safer. But I was overconfident. I thought I could handle it. Zuma explained in pain, a tone of voice. Are you okay? I asked. She took a deep breath. I'll be fine. I just need to rest a moment. Simma rested in my arms for at least thirty minutes before asking to stand on her own again. Are you okay? I wondered. I'm fine. I was just knocked on my tail feathers for a moment, she replied. Maybe we should try again later and take a break for now. It's been a couple days. Let's go see if our order is ready yet, I suggested. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds good, she said, sounding exhausted. I started walking towards the city. But when I looked over my shoulder, Suma hadn't moved. What's wrong? I asked. Um, could I, uh, could I ride in your shoulder? She asked weakly. Sure, no problem. I chuckled slightly and carefully lifted her up and placed her on my shoulder. She was short, maybe a foot tall, but while she was perched, her head was above the top of mine by just a bit. We made our way back to the metal worker's shop, which was only about 10 or 15 minutes walk from where we had been trading. Once inside, the nymph who we'd last spoken to a few days ago perked up and greeted us excitedly. Hello, my unusual friends. I have a part of your order ready for you. It was fun and a unique build. I all but needed to invent the tools needed to complete it, but I have it ready for you. It is the long one with the wooden shaft, he said as he flew over to the table. He reached down and dragged the wooden end of the spear up to the edge of the table and grunted as he did. Here, let me help, I said and picked it up. Ah, thank you, he said. The spear was very nice, well-crafted and sturdy, but thick enough that I was fairly sure that it would do some damage. It was almost as tall as I was, from the tip of the sharpened metal cone which made the spear to the base of the wooden shaft. It was about five feet long and had two and a half inch diameter. Normally, a spear would have a blade at the end, but I opted for this one to utilize a cone-like rod 
rather than a blade. That way, I could be sure that it wouldn't snap. It wouldn't be slicing anyone up, but I would be one heck of a stabbing weapon. The rest of your order should, should be finished in a few days. Uh, I must say, I've had a great deal of fun making such unusual things, the nymph said. Thank you, I said. As we were making our way out, the nymph gave a tool to sharpen the spear's tip if we had got dulled. It was some kind of stone with magic symbols carved into it. I thanked him, and we left to go back to training. During the walk back, I felt the balance of the spear and ran my hand over the sanded down wood and examined the tip. It all seemed to be well made and ready for testing. Once we arrived back at the clearing we had been training in, I looked over at Suma and asked, Are you okay? I'm fine now, she said, and flattered her way off my shoulder and onto the ground. Let's see what the spear can do, I said. End of chapter Part 9 Let's see what the spear can do, I said. Start by giving the tree a few good whacks, Suma suggested. I walked over to the large blue bark tree with red leaves and readied my spear. I gripped it tightly in both hands and then thrust it forwards into the tree trunk. With a loud thwack, I chipped a bit of bark and dug a full two inches into its side with the tip. I gave the spear a good jerk and wrenched it free. I examined the hole in the wood and then glanced over at the spear to check its condition. There was no visible damage on the metal, so I repeated the test a few more times until I was satisfied that the spear wouldn't break during combat. I don't know much about this kind of weapon, but I must say that I am impressed, at least, Suma stated. It did well, I told Suma. No scratches or dents, and the tip is still intact. I'd say it passed with full marks. It seems to be a devastating weapon. Tell me, what monsters must reside in your world to have need for such federacious tools? Suma said. Um, well, there are bears and wolves and beasts like the Borags, but I'd wager it was developed to fight other humans, I told her. So your species has many wolves as well? Suba asked. Oh yeah, all the time. In fact, uh, I'm not sure if there's ever been a time in our history when war wasn't being fought, I said. Never? Asked Sua. Not to my knowledge, I answered. I looked at the spear and had a thought. Man, where am I going to keep this thing? Your house can't be big enough to store this. Suma shifted a weight on a perch. Yes, I'm afraid my home is much too small. But storage shouldn't be a problem. I know a spell that can help. Really? I asked. Zuma flew over to me and landed on my shoulder. Bring it closer, she said, and I tilted the tip of the spear about an inch from her. A moment later, a small magic circle formed around her, and then around my own feet, and then one formed around the shaft of the spear like a snake coiling around its prey. You will need to name the weapon, Jake, Zuma said. Name it. Okay, I thought for a moment about what to call it. Destiny, I said and the magic circles changed from a brilliant blue to a burning red, then faded away. My destiny. There was a famous spear from human history called the Spear of Destiny. I thought it fit, I explained. Hey, Sewer, why did I just name the spear? I asked. I used a similar spell to the one we bonded ourselves with. Now you can summon the spear by calling its name, no matter where you are, she explained. Oh, neat, I said. Try it out, she suggested. I stabbed the spear into the ground and then walked a few feet away. Destiny, I said, but nothing happened. You're not talking to the spear. You're calling for it. Don't just say the words. Mean it. Give them purpose, Suma told me. Okay, I said. I cleared my mind and tried to imagine what she meant. Calling destiny with a purpose and meaning. Destiny, I shouted. 
and the spear blinked out of sight, and then, with a flash, it reappeared into my outstretched hand. That was awesome! I shouted. I threw the spear at the tree and sunk it several inches into the wood, causing it to stick out straight. Then once again I called it back to me, and I repeated the process several times, cackling like a madman while I did. It seems like you're getting the hang of it, Zuma said. I think so, but I just want to try something. I said and tossed the spear a few feet away. I want to try summing the spear without talking, I told her. You want to try shadow casting, she sighed with surprise. So you've heard of it. I just saw something like it on TV show and thought I'd give it a try, I said. Suma nodded her head. It is extremely difficult technique that takes even the best mages years of study to grasp. I doubt you'll be able to get it. Might as well give it a shot, I said and closed my eyes to focus. I tried to focus on what Suma told me about the purpose and meaning. Then I reached out with my mind and in my head thought, Destiny. I didn't feel anything at first, but my mind started filling with images, like strings stretching out into infinity. I would reach for the strings, then draw my hand back as they felt wrong, until I saw it, clear as day in my mind, a red string. In my mind, I reached out and grabbed it, then pulled as hard as I could, once again, in my mind, I called out for my spear and clenched my outstretched hand around a familiar wooden shaft. You... you did it, Suma whispered. End of chapter. Just a quick shout out to the T5 peeps. Bob the Dragon, Cat Crab Lobster, Data Magnet, Dark Machine, Mezic, Try Again 95, Feudic Yol, Astrea the Dreamer, Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Athelia, Meridian 117, and Jordan Buxmorm. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. There are links down below, both to support this channel and for the author of this fiction. Anyways, I hope you all have a fantastic one, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.